Welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 16, The Burbs, from 1989. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, did you know IMDb Trivia, this movie's title is short for The Suburbs. Get out of town. Can you believe that that is IMDb Trivia? Actually, I can't because it's garbage <laughs> most of the time. With us tonight, hosts of two fellow Cage Club Podcast Network shows, both making their Tom Tom Club debut. First up, from the Great White North. That's a thing, right? Yep. We have one of the hosts of the Winona Forever podcast, Lindsay Gibb. Hello, Lindsay. Hey. Thank you for joining us for the Burbs. Of course. Do they have cul-de-sacs in Canada? Sure. Cool. <laughs> Important question. Got that out of the way. Also joining us tonight from the Great White West, the Great White West, from host of the Real Bad podcast is Mr. Nick Jenkins. Hello, Nick. Hi, I'm not late or anything. I don't know why you would say that. Podcasts are timeless. You're always right on the time. The late Nick Jenkins is a zombie. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Nick, you are, you're in not rare company here, but you are going to be on two episodes in a row. And it's rare just the way that like the staggered releases are working, that very few people are on two episodes in a row. But you're going to be on this one, and then next week on Cruise Club, you're going to be on Interview with a Vampire. So you're getting a little taste over here and a little taste over there, and we love having you in both places. And spoiler alert, these are two films I hold very close to my heart. Ooh, I haven't, I've never seen the next one, the cruise one, so we'll get to that next week. But tonight, this is the only movie that I'd seen once before. I think, Mike, based on your letterbox review from last year, you maybe never saw it before last year. Is that true? Yeah, it's pretty close to that. Like, this is one I came to very late. I, I missed it growing up as a kid, but I just loved it from beginning to end the first time I saw it. But, like, just having grown up in the burbs in a cul-de-sac during the mid to late 80s, and everything like it just you know hit close to home and uh it's been a favorite ever since so uh i had a great time rewatching it cool now before we get into this movie i want to take a quick little detour and let's start with Lindsay. Lindsay, what do you think of tom hanks i know so this is mm. for a little bit of background this was i believe the most requested movie that anybody wanted to do like of all the people that we asked to be on either this podcast or the cruise podcast the burbs was i think far and away the most popular you know there's cruise ones like magnolia and eyes wide shut because those are like these grand movies that have, you know, that all this history behind them. This is like a cult classic, a fan favorite. Everybody wants to talk about this movie, so no pressure, but the pressure is on. But in terms of Tom Hanks, in terms of his career, his movies, this movie, whatever, what's your relationship with Tom Hanks? Is this your favorite Tom Hanks movie? And if not, what is? So yeah, you guys put out the call to sign up for this podcast and the other Tom podcast, I think at the same time. And I only picked this movie. I didn't pick any Tom Cruise movies. And this is the only <laughs> Tom Hanks movie I picked. So yeah, I think this is my favorite Tom Hanks movie. <laughs> very fair. Very fair. I have a friend who really loves this movie. So I've watched it a bunch of times with him, I think. And... I, I like the feel of this movie. I And I also am just not a huge Tom Hanks fan. So when I was skimming through his filmography, this mm -hmm. was the only one that jumped out at me. That's interesting because, you know, the saying goes like he's America's dad. Um, I guess he's not Canada's dad. <laughs> Canada's dad is clearly Alan Thicke. Like that is without a doubt. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm kind of glad you said that because... I realized watching this movie that I like Tom Hanks and I like the movies that he's in, but I don't have a nostalgia for him the way that I think a lot of people who really wanted us, like back when we did Keanu, there was this push by our friends, Mike, to do Tom Hanks. Yeah. And then again here, people were like, oh my God, you're finally doing Tom Hanks. And 
I'm happy doing his movies, but I feel like there's no nostalgia for me with him. Like, I didn't really grow up on 80s Hanks. I don't have them as part of my core. And so it's a different sort of experience for me. I'm enjoying it, but, like, I'm connecting with Cruise Club a lot more. Yeah, and that's sort of what I was grappling to this time around is, like, just the nostalgia because I'm realizing, like, I don't kind of enjoy these. These don't really hold up as much for me, you know, I think I was discovering along the way. I think it's maybe hard to have nostalgia for Tom Hanks because he is still so famous and so in everything that when you look back sure it's maybe a slightly different Tom Hanks but it's still Tom Hanks like that's the other thing for me is he just is the same guy all the time to me so which you know I'm an inexperienced Tom Hanks watcher I haven't seen that many of his movies but I think that's why nostalgia it's hard to have around him well in merely one and a half years Mike and I will have seen all of his movies so stay (laughs) tuned for that but Nick what about you I think this is the only Tom Hanks one that you're on. You're going to be on, obviously, next week's Tom Cruise, then another cruise down the line, I believe. Is this your favorite Tom Hanks movie? Where does Tom Hanks fit into your life? I know you said that this is a a movie that's near and dear to your heart, but is this your favorite Hanks movie? It very well could be. It's a toss-up for me between this and Joe versus the Volcano. I absolutely adore both of these movies for very different reasons. I'm, I think I'm just maybe a year or two older than Mike. And I remember my exposure to Tom Hanks began with Bosom Buddies and then into guest appearances on Family Ties Mm -hmm. and things like that. So like I've watched him go from, you know, a co-starring role on a sitcom to guest starring roles to doing some comedies that I kind of appreciated like Money Pit to headlining really good quality comedies like this to being a you know superstar and watching him go along the way. I don't have a lot of nostalgia for a lot of his films. This film, The Burb specifically, I give a lot of credit to a film, even if a film is not that great, if it has a couple moments that really get to me. Um, and that's true of comedies. Like I will give a comedy a long leash if it can give me one good belly laugh. And not everybody's that way, but for me, it works that way. And there's a sequence in The Burbs that is one of my favorite film sequences of all time. And it may live on that almost alone, but I also adore all of the performances, like every Mm -hmm. single one of them. Every single performance in this is chef's kiss, like so, so good. And so it lives on with me. This is the movie I put on if I'm ever sick. Every time I see that it's come back to some streaming service, I immediately watch it. It is a feel-good movie. It makes me feel good. The performances make me feel good. Tom Hanks makes me feel good. Tom Hanks was one of the first actors to really blow my mind with freakouts. Like, he and Chevy Chase could freak out like nobody's business. Yeah, and I'm surprised, just just real quick to interject, like, I'm surprised that after he blows up at Carrie Fisher in the kitchen that, Mike, we have not been tracking this as diligently as we should, because it's kind of that patented Tom Hanks, like, not, like, scream, but, like, that chest yell, that chesty yell, that freak out, and, like, it's the noise, you know, I think we were talking on Cage Club about how Cage walks in a specific way. Like, I feel like this freak out that you're saying, Nick, is, like, it's sort of, it's very much, very clearly him. Yeah, and uh, his freak out when Art tells him that he put a note under the door is like again it, it's such a good freak out because it's mm-hmm. so physical it's not cartoony like Jim Carrey I don't have any problems with Jim Carrey I think he does really good work but it's not that it's its own thing and it's something I really like and Tom Hanks is an interesting 
actor to me because I think he is very talented, but I also think he's gotten some parts that really like, yeah, you did a good job, but were you the right person for that part? So Mm. I don't know. I I feel that way about like things like actually even in Toy Story. I don't particularly care for Tom Hanks as a voice actor, especially compared to Tim Allen. I think Tim Allen is a superior voice actor. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot of those things that it's like, I think he's really good. It also helps that it seems like he is an actually honestly good, nice person. And Mm -hmm. that goes a long way with me as well. The important thing, and we'll get to this later when we ask the questions, though, is that he is on the road to becoming America's dad. This is the first movie in which he plays a dad. However, when he he was reluctant apparently to take the part because he didn't want to be a dad because he thought it wouldn't let him go back to being in the kind of roles, allow him to take the kind of roles or be cast in the kind of roles he had taken up to this point. I think it's a very interesting mentality. Like, I feel when we did Cage, Cage was not really a dad very often, then he became the family man, and still still today, most of his movies, he's like that rugged action star, or trying to recapture that rugged action star feel, and he's not a family man, he's not a dad. Hanks becoming America's dad, this is sort of a pivot point, but it wasn't really his choice like he wanted to be a husband as opposed to like a father and so he wanted the relationship with Carrie Fisher to be at the center because this was also I'm jumping all over the place but this is also filmed during the writer's strike and so they couldn't really do rewrites so a lot of the movie or chunks of the movie are improvised and so they couldn't really write the son out but they kind of wrote the son out because he's in that first scene when Hanks you know walks to the kitchen and then I don't think we see him again but I think it's interesting knowing where he's going to become and you know where he's going to wind up to see him here as that but not quite that so I think I want to sort of keep that uh, a little bit in mind on the back burner that's interesting because I mean it didn't hurt him right like he was I mean he wins the Academy Award for Philadelphia right and like that couldn't be you know further from being you know a dad in the suburbs or anything so it's interesting like his fear of that pigeonholing him doing something he's never really portrayed before on screen and thinking like oh no I'm gonna get stuck doing it he didn't but like he's really good at it so I'm glad he was talked into this role or took the role or whatever because like yeah he definitely helps make this movie for me so let us start so the way that we do the tom tom clubs i don't know if you guys have heard is we instead of just talking about the movie as a whole and i feel like comedies are difficult i think to talk about because it's like oh that was a good joke that was a good joke what we instead focus on sort of the driving force of the conversation is our favorite and least favorite moments so i'm really interested here nick nick you'd mentioned that this might have one of your favorite your or possibly your favorite comedy sequence in any movie what is your favorite part nick of the Okay, so uh, after there's been a lot of shenanigans and Tom Hanks's wife, Ray's wife in this, played by Carrie Fisher, and Rumsfeld's wife decide they're going to be nice and they're going to bake some brownies and go over and meet the Klopex. That sequence... The sequence from when they show up at their front door until Art is chased off by the dog is some of the best comedic acting, some of the best comedic shooting, some of the best comedic uh, ensemble performance. There's not one actor who is not utilized in that sequence. They're all funny. The little moments, there's a look that Carrie Fisher gives Tom Hanks at one point when he looks to her if he has to eat this horribly disgusting pretzel with a sardine on it. And she didn't, but then she looks at him and goes, yeah, you should eat it. All of those moments combined to to, to simple stuff, to Rumsfeld peeling the wallpaper apart and then realizing he's peeled the wallpaper apart and having a shocked look on his face and then putting it back. It is... 
for me, it taught me a lot about comedy. It taught me a lot about editing. It taught me a lot about improv. It, it's just there's so much in there that I absolutely love. And I could watch that scene on repeat. And I think as a kid, I did. I think I just watched that scene over and over again. Even the Klopex are hilarious. Like Brother Theodore, who plays Ruben, when uh, he asks him something and he gives that great, no. Then Rumsfeld taps him about a nine on the tension scale there, Rube. Like everything in that <laughs> sequence is my favorite. I, I absolutely adore it. It's awesome. Like I feel like that is the sort of the passing of the threshold or the entering the threshold because the whole movie up to that point, like probably close to an hour, they have been trying to see inside. Now suddenly you're inside and then it's just like all the wheels fall off essentially. And it just Yes. Everyone <laughs> is both in their element and out of their element and no one exactly knows how to react or how to respond or how to whatever. Well, and it, it's also operating on something. There's a great book um, by Sidney Lumet called Making Movies and he talks about how the camera can tell a joke and I remember being in school uh, and reading this and thinking, when has the camera told a joke? And there is a moment in here where the camera tells a joke and it's where the doctor says, I thought the candles would be romantic for the ladies. And the camera pans over and reveals just a table full, like this huge table full of candles that is obscene. And that is the camera making the joke. There's no one else selling that joke. It's the camera. And I, it, so there's just so much playing in this sequence. Yeah, I think like this movie is built on like these terrific sequences like one after the other like that is definitely a peak one but like you know breaking into Walter's house (laughs) when they think he's been abducted like it's just one after another and I mean I just have we have to recognize I think Joe Dante you know the man who directed this like this guy he was like trained under the Roger Corman school and like came up cutting trailers and he made this movie Hollywood Boulevard which is almost it's like 90% old footage that he recompiled into a new movie and shot like a little bit like the guy is a technical genius when it comes to like the craft and everything like that and like there's so many beautiful sort of long takes and hilarious shots and like you're saying Nick like the the cameras joking around and stuff like they they do that one where it like zooms in and out when they start (laughs) screaming that's good yeah so that's my favorite part I absolutely love it Mike what about you what's your favorite part of the burbs so i think i'm gonna actually go with a character this time and this is someone who believe it or not like i've i don't really like a lot of his performances and i don't like him in a lot of other movies but i think he's so pitch perfect in this and it's bruce dern ah yes watching him is such a joy and you know everyone like all the neighbors or ever all the characters you know even the coke checks like them like everybody just feels so complete and unique and stuff and and like him with like all the army stuff and the wife and I just love I just love how like he starts getting involved and everything and you'd think he'd be a little more rational but nope (laughs) it's just such great commentary I love it it. is and his relationship with Corey Feldman is wonderful yes and he sells that like Corey Feldman is good there's nothing wrong with anything he does but his relationship the way he plays off Corey Feldman is hilarious yeah, so like in a movie with like stellar performances, I really feel like I just have to shout out Bruce Dern a little, a little more, shine a light a little harder on him in this movie, especially since I, I just, I don't know why, I just have trouble with him in some other films. I like him in Hateful Eight, but like maybe in his younger stuff, I just couldn't really get into it. But this time, it's just terrific. 
was he born an old man? Because he's an old man today, and he's 30 years ago, he's an old man still. Like, I was sort of hoping when I saw Bruce Dern's name in the credits, I was like, oh, we might get a younger Bruce Dern. No, I mean, it's a younger Bruce Dern, but it's not a young Bruce Dern. Like, he's just still gray-haired. Like, I know, I'm assuming he's with it, but, like, his look today in Nebraska and in Heat of Late a little bit, and also now in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like, he just looks like he's a lost old man. Yeah. Well, he's in his 80s now, isn't he? Yeah, probably. I mean, because he's got to be, what, like, 55 here or something right 50 55 and 30 years later like i was like i want young brewster i'm sure i could go back further i was like he's always been an old man my entire life he has been an old man well your life yeah <laughs> Lindsay, what about you what is your favorite part of the burbs a character a scene a sequence a moment a line I have a couple. So interestingly, I really don't like art in this movie. Like I, when I say I don't like art, I don't like his character. Obviously, he's not a likable character, but he's right. enjoyable to watch. So I think one of my favorite scenes is an art scene. It's, I guess, art and Ray. I'm not going to get the context of this quite right, but they're talking and art is once again, I think, convincing Ray that like these neighbors are up to something. And I think Tom Hanks is just kind of like singing or something to <laughs> to get him to shut up and then art goes oh yeah singing like as if like satan has possessed him and he goes satan is good satan is our pal <laughs> you're chanting ray you're chanting that's it that's it he's chanting oh my gosh that was the best <laughs> it's so good they use that again when uh, ray has his nightmare all of the monks that are around him everybody in the hoods is chanting i want to kill everyone satan is good satan, satan is, is our, our pal, pal. <laughs> yeah that's it oh my gosh i loved it i also just liked at the beginning i liked the music in this and i particularly like right from the start when i guess is it walter that has the dog yeah so when walter comes out of his house and puts the dog down the soundtrack starts barking yep (laughs) i loved that just a little dog bark in the in the like keyboard part of the song, I guess. There's little things like that that are just so good. Speaking of dogs, the dog in this movie is also this the same dog actor from Silence of the Lambs. So it's a very famous dog. Precious. Precious. Oh, fascinating. I have a favorite sequence a little bit, and I have a favorite line. The sequence is at the end, everything Tom Hanks does with the gurney in this movie is incredible. <laughs> Yeah. Mm, yes. Apparently, he improvised the picking it up and getting into the ambulance because that was not in the script. But when he's just like, you know, getting the list of charges read to him at the end for breaking into the house and setting it on fire and trespassing and breaking and entering and all this different stuff, and he's just like, well, I'm going to go to prison. Like, let's just get this over with. Let's get to the hospital. Let me get, let's get me healed up and let's get out of here. And he then just, you know, carries the gurney into the ambulance. And then two of the neighbors show up and they are evil after all. And then just their tumble. And I feel like it's not the camera telling a joke as much as just like that tracking shot of them falling out the back and following them down the road. Like that whole action piece there at the end. It just kind of kicks things up a notch in a way that I think is really engaging and energetic because all movie long, you're like, are they bad? Are they good? Are they overreacting? Are they, you know, they are overreacting because there's really no basis for like they're doing something weird, just like sort of circumstantial evidence. But in the end, they're proven right, I guess, because they are evil and they are killing people. They have a trunk full of bones. But I like that it ratchets up the energy there and just brings the crazy to the next level. And just that whole final sequence, I I just love. It's an interesting thing 
thing too to, to bring that up is again it's about these characters and how well developed each one of them is there's a moment and it you know the soundtrack helps as well but the moment that the house is on fire and falling in on itself and Ruben looks at the house and you can see his lip quivering we have sympathy for this guy like we are very much like oh these the neighbors are terrible and they have burned this poor man's house down and then of course it's revealed later <laughs> but there is that moment where if you don't know what's coming you do legitimately have sympathy for them like they've just gotten screwed over by their neighbors I love it too because it would work if that was the ending but it's almost like this false conclusion it's like oh this is the end we're done wrap it up and then nope wait a minute <laughs> and I just love that that extra sort of kick in the pants where I feel like that is maybe I don't know because there was a writer strike going on but it feels almost like a screenplay joke in a sense where it's like you're reading the screenplay and everything's done and then wait a second what are these like extra four pages <laughs> doing here and then it's like holy shit like the movie's not over it's like this extra comedy sequence here well so apparently the whole ending the last like 20 pages was rewritten because in the in the original ending before Tom Hanks was cast his character is going to be killed in that ambulance by the neighbors and then Tom Hanks was oh. cast and the studio was like Universal was like no 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 we're not going to kill Tom Hanks but also I forgot this completely Mike but if you remember our very first episode of this podcast he knows you're alone Hanks was supposed to die in that too but as an actor was so charming on set that the writers were like it doesn't matter if he lives or dies like we'll just we're gonna have him live it's fine and so this is now two movies out of the first 16 episodes two movies out of probably what 12 movies that we've done so far 13 movies where he was supposed to die and essentially talked his way out of it or charmed his way out of it he's a charming man yeah he is a charming man so i didn't watch them either but my shout factory dvd it has like a alternate ending and a joe dante's work yes on there and I, I didn't have time to check any of that stuff out there are two endings that i remember it's been a while since i watched them but i remember when i got the dvd i was like oh alternate ending one of the endings is very similar like it, it, it plays very similarly but the doctor gives a very long speech about how everybody even though i'm a, a killer all of you people are just disasters you know like it, so there is there's that one and then there's the one where i think they take off in the ambulance and then it kind of just fades to black like it, where where tom hanks's character would have died I think. Mm. It's been a while, though. I haven't seen them in a while. The other things I had read was that in the trunk, instead of bones, we're going to be like dead cheerleaders, which is kind of a weird ending, and also the dead garbage men from earlier in the movie, that they were going to be there. Oh, not Dick Miller. <laughs> but I think that would have been funny. But it also seems like from the rewrite to the final version, like they basically wrote out Corey Feldman's character. Like he was apparently much more heavily featured in the end, and then he was written out. Good choice. <laughs> I mean, look, I love Corey Feldman and stuff, but a little goes a long way. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was the good choice here is keeping him at this Corey distance. Corey Feldman also agrees with that, apparently. And I, I know that I'm, I'm giving a lot of IMDb trivia up top because it feels just like falls into place here, but he agrees with that because his line, his turn to the camera just saying, God, I love this street. That is apparently what people would go up to him on the street and just say most, more often than anything else. Interesting. I think that was added when they basically took his character out of it for a lot. Joe Dante sort of worked that back in as a way to be like, hey, he's still here. And so that worked. Although I do want to say my favorite line in this movie is I'm going to go do something productive. I'm I'm going to go watch television because I was like, yep, <laughs> love it. That's perfect. Absolutely. Now, on the flip side of the coin, Nick, do you have a least favorite moment? Is there something about this movie that doesn't work for you? I know you you cherish this, but I know that over on Real Bad, you're able to sort of find the good in all things bad. And I'm assuming you're also going to be able to find the bad in most things good. Is there something about this movie that doesn't work for you? What's your least favorite part of this movie? As I get older, I look at this movie and I'm unhappy with how it's leaving the audience 
because I'm always looking for what a movie is trying to say and what it's trying to make you leave the theater thinking and feeling. And in this one, like, I'm uncomfortable with them making heroes out of Ray and uh, and the neighbors, frankly. I think what they did was despicable. Yeah, they caught someone, but there's something too real about it mm-hmm. that a bunch of, you know, middle American white dudes basically uh, saved the world from uh, some immigrants. It doesn't sit well with me anymore. You know, at, at the time when I was a kid, I didn't really think about that. I just thought, hey, hooray, the bad guys got what they deserved. But now that doesn't sit well, and I and, and I, I struggle when I get to the end because I'm like, oh, nah, not, 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 not what I want to be feeling right now. So that's the thing that doesn't work for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that, like, clearly they're overreacting to everything. And, you know, the solution to being curious about what's happening next door is never to break into their house and burn it down. So... And, like, dig up everything. Like, clearly they didn't purposefully burn it down, but I don't know how they thought they were ever going to just do what they were going to do, and then they'd come home and not notice. Like, they dug up their whole basement and backyard, so. It's almost, like, because the characters didn't get arrested and go to jail, like, the lessons lost, yes. right? Like, they were they were building to something, but then they dropped them. Yeah. Yes. And I think an ending where Tom Hanks' character gets killed like we it's revealed that those were bad people but tom hanks still gets killed at least is enough of a bittersweet sort of turn to it and like oh they weren't wrong but this is what this led them to i think would maybe be a little bit better i don't know i'd have to see it in context but but yeah that's something that as as i age that moment does not age well for me i also have a hard time understanding why he chose not to go out of town with his family like I guess it was his curiosity but like he seemed so frustrated with art continually dragging him back into this thing after his like freak outs on art like leave me out of this we gotta stop being like this why why don't you just escape just leave your street (laughs) well he found the wig oh it was the wig yeah he found the wig and then there was that scene which is a great shot. The shot of wide-eyed Hanks. Just yanking a big old toupee out of his underwear. You know, oof, it is. Oof. You know, a lot of this movie, I felt like I was trying to figure out a favorite or least favorite moment until I got to the very end. I was like, you know, I like a lot of this, but I felt like for a lot of this, this is just like a solid, the sum without nostalgia, like a solid B, B-plus movie that I didn't really crazily love any of, but I also didn't really dislike any of. And so until I got to the end, I didn't, so I was sort of struggling in this middle ground where I'm like, like, I like almost all of this, but I don't love any of it. I don't dislike any of it. But then I went on Letterboxd and I, when I logged it and I looked at my one friend who had reviewed this. And I don't know if this is reading too far into it or just, you know, putting too much of a modern lens on it. But he was saying about how in today's political climate and everything like that, like having new neighbors move in who are foreigners and then all these white people around them not taking a liking to them or thinking they're weird or they don't belong kind of feels weird. And I didn't watch the movie with those eyes, but think Thinking about it after the fact, it is kind of not great. You know what? Especially is hard, like to grasp too. For now, because like you know, be quite honest, I have not seen this movie that often, and like I did not read that far into it because I was you know just in, too busy laughing and stuff, just not thinking about what I didn't like about it. But it totally comes out you know at you while you think about it. And having grown up in the suburbs like around this time, you know. I had many foreign neighbors. Like my best friends were the two kids next door who were from the Philippines. Next door to that, 
uh, my friend was Korean. You know, like there was no xenophobia in my neighborhood, which was so weird when you look at a film like this trying to represent those times or say something about that time. And maybe it's a satire, but it's not enough of one if that's what they're going for. It's too funny in other directions, you know? Uh, so like, yeah, that definitely is starting to show more as a flaw. And I feel like you take a movie like Get Out, for instance. I know I don't want to compare this movie to Get Out, but you have Get Out where it's like, it's through the eyes of the outsider, right? Like it's the one person who's not white in the entire world full of white people who are who want to do insidious shit to him, right? And I feel like right. it's a, a the change of perspective makes that unique and interesting and sort of a story worth telling here. It just, I know it's 30 years ago, and I also do want to point out that this movie, still in spite of all of this, ages a lot better than a lot of the other Tom Hanks 80s comedies. Like a lot of those oh, are yeah. wildly, yep. <laughs> wildly do not hold up in many, many different ways. Like I feel like outside of this, like the comedy holds up, there's not really that much sexism. Like, I feel like there's probably always some because it's always the 80s, but I feel like in comparison and in comparison to this, you know, I feel like most of this movie holds up pretty well for 30 years later is a testament to the movie itself. But I just kind of wish that, you know, maybe we had, maybe there's a different version, like, you know, if they were innocent, for instance, like maybe there's a version where it's like Tucker and Dale versus evil, where instead of, you know, these people thinking that there's killers out there, the killers are just like, hey, we're just like here just to say hi. And like, things keep going wrong. Like, I don't know what you want from us. Yeah. Yeah, or if they're just like from another state in America, or right, or like the city, and so they're like, oh, like maybe it's more of just like a city folk thing, and it's not so much a foreigner. You know what I'm just saying? To like keep it more, so it's not so much about necessarily their race. It's just more about them being the new neighbors, and then maybe Walter's disappearance kicks everything off. But and you just try not to focus any of the jokes in the other direction. But I do want to say one thing. You mentioned the the thing about sexism, and I found it fascinating. And again, being a, a white dude, I can you know it's it's easy for me to lose sight of this, but to me, I found it very interesting that the two smartest people in the entire movie are the wives. Mm-hmm. So not only that, neither one of them is afraid of any of the men in any way. They're not subjects of their husbands, and they're not afraid to, to walk up to them, you know, nose to nose and tell them how stupid they're being. <laughs> so I appreciated that. And I, I think that is something that has actually aged better. Like, it, <laughs> as I watch it more and more, I'm like, oh, this actually holds up better than a lot of stuff dealing with husbands and wives of that era. Yeah, the female characters are really good in this movie. The guys, like, they kind of have, except for, I guess, Tom Hanks, outwardly have a lot of the, like, I don't know if this is an 80s thing, like, or pre-80s as well, but, like, the, like, oh, my God, my wife type thing. Like, you know, just kind of rolling your eyes at your wife or just, like, why would you want to stay home and hang out with your wife? Like, art at the end freaks out. Oh, my God, my wife's home? Like, he's yeah. scared that his wife's home and he's constantly telling Ray, like, that he shouldn't be listening to his wife. And Bruce Dern and Art call him pussy-whipped at some point yeah. because he's listening to his wife. Why don't you take your balls out of your wife's purse or something there like that? There you go, yeah. So there's that attitude of the men, but the, the women are good characters. And I actually do wonder if, given that this is from an era or from a time where there was a writer strike and you couldn't really do rewrites and it was kind of to a certain extent in the actor's hands if how much of that credit belongs to Carrie Fisher because I feel like right right she's like such a strong woman and actor and performer and every you know activist right 
And notorious script doctor as yeah. well, right? Like she's got her prints on tons of movies we don't probably don't even know about. But like that's what I was also thinking when you said strike and she's on the scene and like definitely I'm sure, you know, she was contributing a ton here. And 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 a person who is not gonna take any shit. I just found out that she was originally cast in Clue as Miss Scarlet, but she had just entered rehab, and the studio said they weren't willing to risk it, so they last minute replaced her with uh, Leslie Ann Warren. And now, I like Leslie Ann Warren in there, but now I am am very sad that I didn't get to see her as Miss Scarlet. Well, what we need is a modern day Clue reboot with Billy Lord as Miss Scarlet. That's... What, oh, that's what's got to happen. Indeed. Mike, what about you? Did you say your least favorite moment in this movie? It's really hard for me to pull something out that I didn't enjoy that we, you know, haven't really been discussing for the last few minutes. If I really have to stretch, uh, there's one thing about Hanks's character that kind of bugged me, and then I and then I read something in some behind the scenes that shed some light on it. So like he just kind of took the week off from work it's not really clear like did he have a mental breakdown what is going on with that and it 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 turns out that something that they I guess excised from the final draft was um, he was fired from work and he didn't tell his wife and he's trying to figure out a way to tell her uh, the entire movie and at the end she has known the whole time and it's like I knew you should have just told me it's going to be okay kind of thing so like after finding that out it's not that I necessarily wanted that back in the movie but I just wish there was a little more clarity like you know was he told to take a vacation did he screw up at work is there something what is really behind this because it just seems you know i'm just taking this vacation for a week and he doesn't look good you know what i'm saying like there seems to be something bothering him like he is not uh, like trying he's trying to relax so like in you know 80s terms it just seems like oh he might have had a nervous breakdown or something and he needs some time off so again like it doesn't it's not troubling me it's not keeping me up at night um it doesn't get in the way to rewatch this movie but like if uh, just to bring something else up i'd have to go a little with that considering he's the main character i i wanted to bring that up yeah i i read that too and for some reason i don't know why for some reason i kind of got that sense at the beginning that it wasn't exactly a vacation that it was something more than a vacation and i don't know because i don't think i had ever read the trivia or read about this movie when i watched it for the first time but there was just something i think about the way that he was playing it where it's like there's got to be more like it's not just he's on vacation it's like he feels like he can't get away for one reason or another and I don't know. It was just like a weird thing I read. I was like, oh, huh. Maybe I'm smart. I don't know. That's the very first time I've heard of that. I had never I had never heard that before. And in my head, I had always just like that he is just a exhausted, beleaguered guy naturally. And so even at work, he's exhausted. They probably did tell him, dude, Ray, just take a week off, man. So that's how I read it. But the idea that he would have been fired is an interesting wrinkle and, and didn't tell her is also an interesting wrinkle. Yeah. Again, without it being in context, no way to know if it would have worked or not. I also feel like that could explain why he wants to distract himself with like spying on his neighbors instead of going away with his family. Because if he's lying to his wife about being on vacation instead of being fired, then maybe just escape from that even further by just paying more attention to what's going on at your neighbor's house. You know, one thing I do want to point out about this movie on a grand scale is that we are something like 1150 episodes into this podcast. Podcast network, and you know, Mike and I have done a, a not the lion's share of them, but a lot of them for the actors we've covered. And considering like this is a horror movie to an extent, but considering like this is probably one of the five or ten movies that is the most a horror movie that we've ever covered, Mike, like it just shows how little horror the actors that we've covered have done. And it just 
you know, it, it caught me off guard. I was like, oh, right, like, we're, we're, we're sort of diving back into, like, uncharted waters here. Well, you know what really stuck out of me this time is uh, this is sort of, like, built on the bones of, like, Rear Window, yeah. right? And, like, we watched Disturbia with Shia and everything, and, like, I was getting heavy vibes from from those movies while, while, while I was watching this this time. Like, what's different from between this movie and Fright Night? Because this feels like Fright Night. There's a vampire in Fright Night. That's it. Chris Sarandon's a vampire. <laughs> but again, it's it's still like there's the neighbors that you think are up to something, and then no, they're not up to something, but then they actually are up to something. Like, it's the same... They're all real. real. You know what <laughs> right. I'm saying? Like, I don't know if Hitchcock got... I haven't done any research further back, if that's from some silent film that he knew about. You're right. It, they're all Rear Window. This is Rear Window, but it's a comedy. This is Rear Window, but it's with Shia LaBeouf. You know, it's this is Rear Window, but it's an actual horror movie with vampires, and, you know, and it's a monster movie. So, yeah... I mean, Rear Window does it. I'm sure there are other films that were around before that, but that's our big touchstone. I'd say not plot-wise, but just feel-wise, this made me think of Beetlejuice. Just has like a similar like feel to it, I think. Maybe it was the music at the beginning, but... There's a certain... I always get like a certain whimsy from both movies and so same thing and something that struck me this time watching it is I loved I mean it occurred to me I don't know if it, this is actual but like it looks like they're filming on a back lot right mm. and it looks great and it's great but there's also sort of like this we're in like a playhouse kind of feel to it too I don't know I just love the uh the vibe that this movie gives off as well yeah, I feel like both movies are just kind of funny, but not spooky, but they just have the same feel. I would say that Beetlejuice definitely gives me more of a horror vibe. This feels like a cartoon version of horror. Yeah. So, like, you know, when he's got the the axe in his head in the dream, when Walter's got the axe in his head, and then Queenie has a little tiny axe in her head. You know, it, it's stuff like that, that it's definitely trying to... And then when it's interrupted by him watching actual horror movies, you can see the difference. Like, when he goes past The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw 2, like, completely different vibe in those movies, and, and which allows you to remember, yes, this is a comedy. Right. Did you guys notice, I mean, this was a very meta moment for me after he watches all those horror movies, he wakes up in the morning and Mr. Rogers is on. <laughs> I was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. And he's Mr. Rogers. Apparently this was supposed to start, this movie was supposed to start and end with the Mr. Rogers theme. And then they brought Jerry Goldsmith on board and they did the entire score for this. And Jerry Goldsmith, who also did the score for Alien and I'm sure a bunch of other movies as well. But he like completely wrote, he's got the, that that great chamber music which I think is super cool but this is supposed to be like this whole like running theme throughout of Mr. Rogers and then here we are 30 years later interesting and he's gonna play Mr. Rogers in a movie so and I was recently watching an old drunk history where his son plays Mr. Rogers oh okay mm-hmm we're Colin Hanks yeah yeah someone put them side by side and said it was like the old age app and was like look at this but it's just Colin and Tom and they <laughs> as Mr. Rogers I feel like this is sort of a you know how you know how like in Pixar they're like oh, we told you what movie's going to be next, because if you look two movies ago, like, on the floor of that bedroom, there was a toy, and it was Duke Kaboom, and he's going to be in this movie. Like, I feel like it's that, but this. Like, hey, <laughs> you always knew he was going to play Mr. Rogers. Look at this. He's watching Mr. Rogers in this movie from 30 years ago, which means next, and I actually, I would not be surprised if this happens. He and Carrie Fisher in this movie are watching Jeopardy, which is apparently a improvised thing. Like, let's just play along with Jeopardy. Like, I wonder if all those little moments that they just added up, like, if they took those out, like, would this movie be even 90 minutes long? I don't know. But I would not be surprised if Tom Hanks one day played Alex Trebek. 
interesting. <laughs> See, movies, the parts that he probably shouldn't get. For 200, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I do also really love the moment where it feels like it's one of those movie moments where they're trying to break in through the back door and he says, give me a credit card. And he takes out the wallet and all the cards are fused together because he just snipped the wire and got electrocuted. But Tom Hanks takes the credit card and he's like, he slides it in the door and Art says, how'd you learn how to do this? He's like, I don't know how to do this. And then the card snaps in half. And I just love that there's so many movies, I don't know if it's, you know, making fun of spy movies or whatever, but there's so many movies where people just like pick up things, like they just know how to do things. And here he's like, oh, I'm just going to try this. I've seen this, in a, on, I've seen this on TV before. And then he tries it, the card snaps. He's like, all right, now just break the window. And I love his performance as he does that, just reaches for the hay, punches the window. <laughs> it's like really, really solid stuff. I also, in that same vein, I want to talk about really quickly, it's not my favorite line, but it is my favorite stunt in the movie, which is Rumsfeld falling off the house. That still to this day blows my mind. Like that is an incredible stunt. And it's not just incredible because of the danger. They're stunt people. They do this all the time. But like the way it's choreographed with him losing his footing and trying to catch his footing, then losing it, sliding down. And then the exclamation point at the end is he blows a a hole in the door of a car. It's just so, so good. And when I was a kid, it just blew my mind. I was like, how did they do that stunt? I watch it now. It's very tightly edited. But oh, God, I still love it. Mike, do you have any other thoughts about the burbs before I uh, do some trivia and we play some games here at the end? Do you have anything else that we did not talk about? I know there's a lot to cover in this movie, but anything else that really stands out in your mind? There's just one moment that I love so much uh, that I didn't mention is when they're they're spying on the neighbors. The neighbors drive the garbage <laughs> to the to the end of the driveway, and Tom Hanks is like, "You don't do that. You don't you don't drive the garbage to the end of the street and beat the hell out of it." You, you just don't do that. And like the lightning strikes and everything, and like that moment, I just die every time of that. It's so good. Also, I love that the garbage stays in the middle of the street the entire movie. I yes. Think that's, that's something that people know about this movie, but they <laughs> dig through the trash to try to find out what the neighbors are throwing away or burying or whatever. And then just the trash stays in the middle of the street for the entire movie. And then even like two minutes ago in the movie or whatever, you know, Carrie Fisher's running over it as she's driving home or whoever's running over as they drive home. Like it's just, it's always there. It never leaves. It's a weird kind of continuity that is just, just wonderful. It is. It's so good. It's such a wonderful attention to detail. Nick, what about you? Any other thoughts about the burbs? Anything else that you love about this movie or, you know, want to make sure that we talk about? You know, not really. I think it's just, I think it's a wonderful film to watch as a comedy to see how comedy plays with uh, everything from performance to camera. Um, I think a lot of times we rely a lot on performance with comedy, which is understandable because we think of comedic performers, but I love how much of this movie plays toward comedy without intentionally drawing attention to it. Like the trash in the middle of the street, that's funny. And every time someone drives down the street, you clunk, clunk as they go over the trash. And it's funny, but it's not something that it's, you know, it's not trying to draw your attention to it. So I really think it's a great film to watch for just how comedy plays across all elements of cinema and when you're really working at it. And I think you're right. I think Joe Dante was like, might have been at the top of his game here. I I think that he's made some very good films. This is my favorite of his. Even though I like Gremlins, and I even like one of his first films was Piranha, uh, which was a Roger Corman-produced film, which is a schlocky horror film, but he did a really good job directing that. And it is a funny, entertaining B-movie. Yeah, I think he is sort of in total control of a lot of this here. Like, he just does, he has everything down, and it sort of feels like, even though, the as we've been talking about, as I've been talking about with the writer strike and stuff, like, the circumstances surrounding the making of this movie might not have been ideal, but I think, like everything you're saying, Nick, he's able to take the performances and 
and the details and the timing and everything and just sort of weave them together in a movie that is kind of timeless. Like, it's wonderful. Yeah. Lindsay, what about you? Any other thoughts about The Burbs? Maybe not about The Burbs, but I had a thought about Tom Hanks while watching The Burbs. Like I said, I, you know, haven't watched that many Tom Hanks movies, but this movie reminded me of what you were talking about at the beginning, like his freakouts. And as guys who are now watching lots of Tom Hanks and have watched all of Nicolas Cage. Yep. How do you compare their freakouts? Have you already talked about this before? Oh, no, we have not. Cage's are more theatrical. Yeah. Tom Hanks's seem to be all about anger, but I don't know if that's true all the time. In this one, it's... Less anger and more frustration. frustration. Yeah, I yeah. think it's just like yeah. he's the man who's caught in a situation he cannot believe he's in, whereas Nicolas Cage to sort of, in that way, would sort of lead himself to that situation, kind of, right? Or he would just like, it feels like Cage is sort of like the Seinfeld of explosions, right? Like it's, you know, airport jail, like him just, like, just getting annoyed by the minor irritances of everyday life, whereas Tom Hanks is like, just can't deal with the world. I guess it's similar in that way. I don't know. Maybe it's a bad example. But I do feel like Cage is more over-the-top, more theatrical, more angry, and and Hanks is more frustrated. What about you, Mike? What do you think? Yeah, I think Cage is definitely more often. (laughs) Yeah. That much. And he seems to go a bit bigger, but there's also just something, I don't know, maybe there's something about Hanks because there's so few and far between, they feel a little more poignant or sincere sometimes i feel like cage's freakouts not that i don't like him or anything may not be called for every single time or like he's just trying to do something to try something yeah which is part of you know why i love that and so far with hanks they've all been very called for they seem appropriate all of them so far so differences like all actors and stuff but you know not as extreme necessarily in the actual sort of uh, execution not as different as I would expect. Like, when they're in it, I feel like Hanks can get to that level. You know what I'm saying? If he ne- if he wanted to. It just doesn't seem like the time has been called for yet. Right. We will get there. I'm sure we will get there. We've got a lot of time. We had a long road to go, Mike. We will get there. I think that Nick Cage is really good at like putting out the idea that he is starting to lose his grasp on reality and however these freakouts are treating him like he is you know and not just in you know real expressive pieces like the end of Mandy or anything like that like even when he's one of his charms is like that his character exists just outside of the reality that the film exists in whereas Hanks I often think of his best freakout as being in one of his you know okay movies which is The Money Pit with Shelley Long when the tub falls through and we have this pause and then Hanks nearly kills himself laughing yep. at the absurdity of it. I think we're right there with him and he is reminding us that this is absurd in a way and he's not trying to do anything theatrical he's trying to communicate how that character feels at this point in time and where the story is at that point in time and they're just as Mike as you said they're just different actors different takes on material but I'm more of a Hanks freak out guy myself but I also love me some Nicolas Cage. I'm obviously a Nicolas Cage freak out <laughs> person but yeah Yeah, I think I wrote something down about like Hanks is always and again, I don't want to make all these generalizations about Tom Hanks because it's the same as people who make generalizations about Nicolas Cage and have haven't watched all his movies. I have barely watched any Tom Hanks movies. But to me, I see him as like a straight man, our connection to reality, our moral center of things. So I feel like that's where his freakouts are coming from. Like we can relate to them. Whereas Nicolas Cage is like more experimental and like out there with his freakouts. And I'm glad, I'm so glad they both exist. 
Yeah. What a sad world it would be. I know. What a sad world if Nicolas Cage didn't exist. Well, we wouldn't be here if Nicolas Cage didn't exist. Like, none of us, we wouldn't know Lindsay. We probably wouldn't have podcasts. I, I don't know. It's been a rough year, guys. I mean, we're seven months deep. No new Cage. But they're fans, coming. So. We oh, know. We, they're coming. I think they're coming. <laughs> They'll just explode at the end of the year. <laughs> <It'll> be... <laughs> So here's some uh, quick trivia about this that we can play some games. So Wendy Shaw, who plays Bruce Stern's wife, apparently Seth MacFarlane loves her and loves this movie so much. He cast her as the mom in American Dad based on this movie alone, based on this performance alone, which huh. I think is pretty cool. Um, I don't watch American Dad, but I just think it's cool to see something, you know, inspire something else like that. I think we talked about this... Maybe on the Dragnet episode, Mike, but because this is shot on the back lot, a lot of the houses on this neighborhood on this street have been used in a lot of different things. Corey Feldman's character's house is where the Munsters was filmed. Tom Hanks's house is the Leave it to Beaver house. There's another house on the street that's the Desperate Housewives house. And also the Virgin Connie Swales house in Dragnet is also on the street. So this is like a very famous TV and movie set street. The last thing I want to say is that Tom Hanks, apparently this movie was so much fun to make that Tom Hanks bought everyone sunglasses and wrote everybody a hand written thank you note like a personalized note but he wrote to wendy shawl i still don't get what you were doing it was great working with you like he was so befuddled by what she was doing that he's just like you were great but i don't know what was going on and i just think that's so weird and funny like yeah you're you're great but i what what did she do that was weird that he didn't get i think he was probably looking for a a more like over the top you know young i don't know what the right word is trophy wife of sorts yeah, trophy. Yeah. I think he was looking for something more of like maybe even kind of a bimbo character. Right. And she totally wasn't. She was not, you know, and I it's something it reminded me a little bit of I don't know if you guys ever watched Northern Exposure. Well, it reminded me a little bit of Holling Vancouver and his wife, who was much younger than him. And but they play they just play as a couple. They don't right. they don't ever really draw attention to the fact that they, they have an age gap. And I felt very similarly here that like <laughs> just felt like they were just a couple. Yep. And a lot of that has to do with her and how she played it. Totally. And I feel like maybe part of the confusion comes from the fact that she's not a major character. She's sort of a secondary character. And we never get the shorthand of like, oh, she married him for his money. Or, or she uh, right. she's waiting for him to die or whatever. It's just like, oh, no, they're in love. And like, it's just like, well, wait, we're waiting for something. And it's just like, oh, no, like it's just an older dude and a younger woman and they work together. It's like, oh, no, okay. I think the one moment we get is when Corey Feldman is talking to her and you can tell that he's kind of like, ogling her from next door or whatever and then Bruce Dern just looks at him and says to her that boy next door is an idiot or something to that degree that kid next door is a meatball yeah there you go a meatball I knew you, someone would know the line. Exactly. I've watched this movie a lot, you guys. And I just like that. I like that he's like, just like, whatever. Not threatened at all by this young kid. He's just like, whatever. He's a meatball. So now I have a very important question. And we I think we can do this as a group. And I, I don't want to blaspheme Nick. But imagine for a second, you said that you, you like Tom Hanks in this movie. You don't think Tom Hanks works in every role. But in every episode of the Tom Tom Club, we imagine a world in which the other Tom replaces this Tom. So do you think... If Tom Cruise was the lead actor in The Burbs, would this movie have worked? No. No. Yeah. Same. Or, if not, what role could he have played in this movie? Oh, God. How old is he? Would he have been Corey Feldman? <laughs> he would have been, no, he would have been older than that. He would have been probably close to, probably 28-ish. Also, does Corey Feldman's character own that house? Because he seems like he's like 22. He, he talks about his parents, I think. So they're just yeah. out of town. Gotcha. They're my parents' house, and they're they're eating all their food. <laughs> so is the consensus no? Tom Cruise would not work here. So then, what what role could he have worked in? Could he be Hans? <laughs> 
I'm just scrolling through everybody. He could be a garbage man or Hans, maybe. Oh, that would have been actually him being one of the garbage men would have been funny, a funny cameo. Mm-hmm. I would have been OK with that. But the problem is I also love Dick Miller and Robert Picardo yeah. as those two garbage men. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. He is such a one of his strengths and weaknesses is the fact that Tom Cruise is such a blank slate most of the time like he plays kind of the same kind of the same character although we'll talk about why that doesn't hold up in interview with a vampire but i i can't think of a play what can you guys i'm having a tough time the only thing i can come up with is if like he had an encounter with someone from work and this would be the guy that that would be if if there was you know i don't know where or when that would come in because i love how the movie starts but if for some reason there was a scene early on where you know we find out he got fired or this new guy came in and it was tom cruise like replacing him and that's it it's like get rid of that cameo right at the beginning of the movie but i don't think i I mean i don't think that would work so therefore i don't really for the first time i don't feel like i could put him anywhere in this movie it feels so well put together Mm -hmm. the way it is i do have a fix but joey go ahead if you have one i think he would so my i'm still sticking to my guns of at this point i still think that tom cruise could do any role that tom hanks did I don't know if it would work as well, but I think that this movie would be enjoyable. It'd be a different kind of movie, but I think instead of growing frustrated, I think he would be more manic. I think it would be a different kind of... Like, I think there would have to sort of be more counterbalancing of the Carrie Fisher character, like sort of calming him down a little bit more. I think it would work, though, because our, our whole big thing so far to date in in both these podcasts, Nick and Lindsay, is that Hank sort of gets out the gate a little bit slow. He sort of gets pigeonholed, but like Cruz literally runs out of the box, and Cruz is in like three or four of his biggest movies of all time in his first like ten movies. And so I feel, I really do feel like he could be here. I think Tom Hanks would probably be better, and I think he's better suited to the role in the movie as it is, but I think that there would be a certain kind of mania and a certain kind of dedicated focus to figuring out what's going on next door that Tom Cruise could still capture. I, I agree with you. I think it would change it it becomes maybe less of a comedy and more of a thriller darker definitely darker yeah but i would say you could replace ron howard's dad as the cop with tom cruise and i think that would at least be again a fun cameo yeah so now speaking of fun cameos if you want a walk-on role into this movie if you 2019 nick jenkins Lindsay gibb get transported back in time 30 years ago what scene are you putting yourself in where are you finding yourself in the burbs hmm Nick, it's a life. It's a lifelong dream come true. One of your favorite movies. You're suddenly. I don't know how, but you wake up one day. You're on the set of the Burbs, the Universal backlot. Who are you? Where are you? Who are you talking to? What are you doing? Are you a gar? Are you a third garbage man? Are you? in the scene at the end are you the cop you know speak you know interviewing crew like who are you who am i it's an existential quandary yes try not to have like a, a mental breakdown here trying to figure out who you are vis-a-vis the burbs this reminds me of the the story that abed tells in community about being on the set of desperate housewives and when he poops his pants <laughs> um, but i would probably if i had my druthers if i had if i really got to choose what i wanted to do i would want to be one of those garbage men i i love that scene i think i could do it i wouldn't be as good as either of those two wonderful character actors but i i would love to give it the old college try love it Lindsay. what about you i can only i mean 2019 Lindsay is too old to be one of Corey feldman's friends but if i was any age i suppose i feel like that's the only place i could see myself you could be the pizza dude i don't even remember the pizza dude we don't see him i don't think the pizza van shows up and all the pizzas tumble out but uh you could be riding shotgun with the pizza dude <laughs> there you go so not even in it <laughs> just in a car <laughs> that nobody sees me nah i'd rather be one of Corey feldman's That's friends fair. i like that mike what about you it's funny i was thinking about pizza dude while watching this movie but i'm okay so i think i'm gonna craft a quick 
role mailman. I don't believe there's a mailman in this entire movie. And I mean, just a real simple, you know, the next morning wide shot on the house and I walk up and put the mail in the thing and walk out of frame and the movie keeps going and that's the end (laughs) well because the mail is important in this movie he finds the toupee in the mail right so like there's reason for you to be there thought real long and hard about that one (laughs) i am going to i think i've done something like this before if not this very thing before but i am going to go very deep into this movie and i'm going to be on the episode of jeopardy that they are watching answering (laughs) so you hear my voice but you never see me that's good thank you so much So we have a very important question. I think the answer is yes, just for the fact of what we talked about before. But does Tom Hanks in this movie do anything that puts him on the road to becoming America's dad? This is the first movie he's a dad. So just because of that alone. He's a dad who wants to spend no time with his son and would rather be next door digging up the neighbor's house. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. That's the 80s dad. Yeah, that is an 80s America's dad. Like, But I also found him very believable as a dad. Like, yeah. There was nothing about it where I was like, eh, false. It, like it all, it felt real to me. So I, I definitely think that in here, just if nothing else other than like, I believed that that was a husband and wife with a kid. Yeah. And, and, you know, they all played off each other. Even the kid, when the kid was around, he played off of Tom Hanks really well. So, yeah, I, I think that just him being a dad in here leads directly to that. Totally. I would agree. I was going to say that little kid is like really good. It's too bad they'd have to trim him down a bit. And I also love how like he's hanging out with Corey Feldman sometimes. Like he's out doing his own thing. Like he's really smart. Like it seems like they're doing, well, you know, maybe Carrie Fisher's doing most of the work raising him, but it seems like he's well adjusted. You know, they're raising a good kid. I love it when he is actually hanging out with Art and they're helping Art climb the fence and everything. And they're not doing anything, but Art keeps saying, thank you so much for your help, guys. Like this this is really helpful. All right, it's time to nominate this movie for some awards for the Woodies, the the Golden Wood Woodman Awards, the Woodies. First off, nominate this. Again, I don't know if this is going to hold up throughout the entire run of Hanks from the Memories, but I'm going to nominate it for Best Film, because I think for sure through the first, say, quarter of the of the podcast run, definitely up there with the very best. So Best Film. Do we want to nominate this for Best Hanks Role? I would say, yeah. since I it's the agree. only one I chose. <laughs> All right. I've seen a lot of Hanks films, and I, I would say this is this is up there for him. He really it's a it's it's kind of a oddly like subtle and real role. He's the straight man in this, but I think he does a just a damn good job. Do you have a category for best movie poster? Because no, I don't. But I do like it that. Deserves it is, that. That is also kind of an iconic with him with the the hose in his hand, right? The just yeah, staring. Yeah, the fly swatter or the spatula or yep. something. Dead-eyed into the camera. I'm going to nominate this for the second time in the category alongside Bosom Buddies, Mike, for Best Ensemble. That was what Ooh, I was going to yeah. say. Best Fight? Is there a fight in here specifically that Hanks gets into that we want to nominate for Best Fight? Oh, yeah, the um, the ambulance. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. But also when he's choking Art at the end because he's frustrated <laughs> that Art's still going on <laughs> about everything after they blow up the house. Does Tom Hanks dance not that i remember i don't think so and there's no there's no real party scene of note best hanks outfit wardrobe Mm, not really best death he does not die best line i do want to nominate um i'm gonna go do something productive i'm gonna watch tv it's a good one i would also like to nominate art's got a gun i think we need to nominate a best freak out here yeah what is actually the the subject of his freak out in the in the kitchen i think that's is that the big one or what's what's the big what's the the memorable notable freak out 
There are two. Okay. There are two real notable ones for me, at least. Um, the most obvious one is at the end when he's choking Art. That whole that whole sequence, and it might be the one that you guys pick. My personal favorite is the one where Art tells him he slipped a note under the door and ran. That freak out is the one where I feel like it, it it's comedy gold. Hanks' performance there is he's understanding things and crushing cans and trying to explain why this is a problem is is wonderful to me. So that's my pick. All right, I'll say freaking out at Art Ree the Note in The Burbs. I'm going to nominate this for Best Soundtrack Theme because I do love the very, like, sort of doesn't quite fit but also fits perfectly, like the big cathedral-sounding organ. I like that. Best or worst love story? I think that, you know, he and Carrie Fisher have a nice relationship, but it's not obviously a love story here. And then the final category to nominate Best non-Hanks actor, male or female. Is there a single performance in this movie knowing where we're going to go for his career that stands out above the rest? I'm going with Bruce Dern. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I'll second that. Cool. To recap, eight nominations, best film, best role, best ensemble, best fight, best line, best freakout, best soundtrack, and best non-Hanks actor, male. What a showing. Great movie. Great showing here in the Woodies. Let's see if people vote for it in, I don't know, two years or whenever we get to it. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but thank you both so much for joining us. Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Nick, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. But Lindsay, quickly, if you want to plug Winona Forever, we're kind of winding down a bit on Winona Forever. Also, we're winding down on both your podcasts. So Lindsay, if you want to sort of plug uh, Winona Forever, go for it. Sure. So it's funny you were talking about how there hasn't been that many horror things. And we would just talked about about that in our Black Swan episode, which is up right now, how there's not a lot of horror in Winona's filmography. And then our next episode is about the Iceman with Michael Shannon. So that's in a week or two. That'll go up. So yeah, that will be that should be up. I think two days before this goes up, I think that will be up. So yes, so go check out the Iceman. And Nick, why don't you plug real bad? You have about as this comes out, probably like six or seven more episodes um, before your nice century mark. 100 and done. Instead of one and done, 100 and done. But plug Real Bad. Yeah, so Real Bad is a podcast where we talk about real bad movies and why they want to hurt us. We don't have it planned out far enough to really know what's coming because we also do Patreon votes to figure out uh, at least one movie per month. The last one that we did was Miami Connection and enjoyed the living crap out of that movie. So um, if you want to hear a bunch of people just wax philosophical about the quality of a movie versus whether the movie made us feel good or bad you can check that out and miami connection is incredible listen to the podcast go watch that movie go watch that movie again go watch that movie again because miami connection is a dream to behold it's so it's so amazing but thank you both for also uh as you're listening to this a new episode of third times a charm is out about starship troopers 3 so that monthly podcast dropped so go check that out uh, Starship Troopers 3 over on Mike's podcast, Third Time's a Charm. Absolutely. Thank you both for joining us. For all things Hanks for the Memories, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next week on our Cruise Club feed to hear Nick's voice once again for Interview with the Vampire, and then come back in two weeks here on Hanks for the Memories for a little film called Turner and Hooch, a buddy cop comedy, I think, where Hanks and a dog are partners. I think that's what it's about. I hope that's what it's about. I'll find out for sure in two weeks. That is what it's about. Wonderful. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Lindsay Gibb of the Winona Forever podcast and Nick Jenkins of the Real Bad podcast. And we'll see you again next week on Cruise Club in two weeks right here on Hanks for the Memories.
going to go do something productive. I'm going to go watch television. <laughs>